Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 6, 10, verses um, through chapter 7 through 14. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm glad you're here. What a good-looking Bible reader we had this morning. That's my wife if you're visiting us, so... Um, my name is Garrett Richards. I'm an elder here at Redemption's Hill. I'm excited to, uh, to get to, to bring the word today. And I'm glad you're here, um, on the heels of a, a good homecoming yesterday, right? It's a good, good day to be a tiger. Um, I am not a, a Mizzou alum, but I grew up going to games, um, as a kid. And so because of that, I reserve the right to call myself a tiger, um, when they're good. So right now... It's a good day. So um, Blaise Pascal is the name of a 17th century French philosopher. Um, Kind of a, he he dabbled in a lot of different areas. He was a philosopher, mathematician. was actually like a child prodigy um, in mathematics. Um, And then through like a conversion experience that he got because of his wife, um, he really had some some interesting insights uh, in, in his religious thinking. Um, and he, he wrote several books, and, and one um, which is called The Pensees, it's a collection of his kind of thoughts on religion, philosophy, and human nature. And I want to start our time this morning in Ecclesiastes by reading you um, an excerpt from Pascal's writing in The Pensees. He says this, 
We never keep to the present. We recall the past. We anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming and we're trying to hurry it up. Or we recall the past as if to say it's too stay, it's too rapid flight. We are so unwise that we wander about in times that do not belong to us. And we do not think of the only one that does. So vain that we dream of times that are not and blindly flee the one that is. The fact is that the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. And if we find it enjoyable, we are sorry to see it slip away. We try to give it the support of the future and think how we are going to arrange things over which we have no control for a time we can never be sure of reaching. Let each of us examine his thoughts. He will find them wholly concerned with the past or the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it is only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means, the future alone our end. Thus, we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we are always planning to be happy, it is inevitable that we should never be so. Isn't that good? That's so good. If you're visiting us this morning, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book, we have the teacher. And we know this is King Solomon in his old age, so old man, King Solomon imparting on us the wisdom that he has gained throughout his impressive life. And as we started this series, if your understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes was kind of like mine, or if this is your first week with us and maybe you've, you've read it um, quickly in the past, uh, coming into this series is you can get the idea that, that Ecclesiastes has this vibe, this kind of like what I would call emo, Eeyore, nothing matters, life stinks, then you die kind of vibe, right? That's how I've read it in the past. Um, like I hear this voice saying, vanity, vanity, and have thought, well, what's the point? That's how I've read it at times in the past. But as we've seen through the first six chapters so far, is that that isn't at all what the book is saying. That is not what Solomon wants us to hear. Instead, it sits right in the middle of the wisdom literature and offers us this painfully sometimes real, honest view of what Solomon calls life under the sun, right? That is life this side of eternity. And as we've studied it, and as my understanding of the book has become informed and changed and deepened, I have found this appreciation for really how relatable it is, the, the, how relatable the truth that it speaks. Like I see this balance that it brings on the heels of Proverbs, right? If you know your Bible or if you spent much time in Proverbs, there's a way to read Proverbs in all of its wisdom. There's a way to read it as if it is a blueprint for a successful life. And here's what I mean by that. Proverbs 22, six says, train up a child, in the way he should go, 
and when he is old, he will not depart from it, right? And what happens is if we're not careful, we take that proverb, we slap it on the side of our coffee mug, we put it on the cover of our prayer journal and we treat it like it's uh, like, do this and you'll get this, right? Do this and you'll get this. Then we have Ecclesiastes coming along that says, well, well, let me back up. The reason that it is dangerous maybe to read Proverbs in that way is when inevitably things don't work out that way, right? Well, it told me raise my child up and he will not depart, but we know how life goes that it's not a guarantee. So then when that doesn't happen, it can lead us into questioning God, his goodness. God, do you not keep the word that you said? It can have us questioning our faith if things don't work out the way they should. So then you have this beautiful part, I think, of Ecclesiastes coming along right on the heels of that. And you have Solomon saying, eh, it's all vanity and who really knows what's going on anyway? Right? Solomon's like, well, the wise man, the foolish man, they all wind up in the dirt. Who really knows? So it's this kind of brutally honest, real reflection from a man who has a lot of life behind him and has seen some things, right? So as we continue our series through the book today, Solomon, the teacher, starts by pointing out to us that our viewpoint of life how we see the good gifts that God gives us, as well as what we perceive as trials or hardships, are often disoriented to what the truth actually is and what is actually good or what is actually bad. Just like Pascal points out, the present usually hurts. It's, it's painful. And so we often look to escape the present and our sorrow and our hardships any way that we can. The wisdom that Solomon wants to impart on us through the text today is that as believers, if your faith is in Jesus, it is better for you and for me to keep in front of us and understand what the end goal is, right? To understand what is the end goal? And then we allow that knowledge to shape how we respond in our present circumstances, in the here and now. Let's pray real quick. God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the great I am, that your name is above all names, that you are so awesome in power but so great in mercy and love that you're here with us, speaking to us now in this very moment. God, we just pray that your spirit would be here upon us, that we would hear your word, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would be challenged by it. And the God, that your voice would be the one that is heard today, not mine. So just guide us, let us just rest and trust in you this morning. Be glorified in your holy name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So he starts out this section of text 
showing us that our viewpoint of life, how we think and how we see things, are how we have it upside down. We have it flipped on its head. And he does this by pointing us back all the way to Genesis, okay? To the garden, to when God spoke and things just existed. God said it and it existed. And not only did it exist, but it was good. It was how God intended it. Solomon's words today that we're reading take us back to that place to remind us that our way, our perception, our viewpoint isn't actually what God intended. So when he says in verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 6, whatever has come to be has already been named, right? Whatever has come to be has already been named. Where do we see in the Bible where things got their name? We can participate today. Where do we see in the Bible where things got their name? Genesis, right? He's saying that back at creation, the creator God put his stamp on the earth and all things in it, and they've all been named. In other words, there's nothing new under the... Really good. So we've already learned that everything received its name at the beginning, Right? But what else did we learn in Genesis, specifically Genesis 3? We learned that God had a plan. He put a stamp on things and they were good. God knows what's up. Man, we just screw it up, right? We don't know. So verse 10 clearly tells us this, that man is not able to dispute with one who is stronger than he. One would be God, that's who we're talking about. Man cannot dispute with God because God already named all the things. He put his stamp on creation. God knows and we don't. And Solomon says that the more words and the more arguing and the more blaming and the more complaining that we do in our present when it hurts, right? When things aren't working out the way that we think our viewpoint says that it should, Solomon says, if we argue with God or the more words that we speak to it, the more complaining or blaming that we do, he says, really, the more foolish we are because there's no advantage to it. We cannot question what God is doing because we don't know what he who is greater than us is doing, there's no advantage to it. That's what verse 11 says, because we don't know what is coming next. The teacher is saying, we don't know what's good for us, right? Any of you got kids? Your kids think they know what they need, right? And our job as parents is sometimes to say like, yeah, you don't really know, right? It's the same. The teacher says, we don't really know what's good for us. Or get this, we don't know what's bad for us either. He's saying that those things that you want, those things that you desire, those things that you are striving for because you think that's what happiness looks like, that's what being prosperous 
or fulfilled would look like. That is what would bring me joy. Those things, those worldly and sometimes good gifts that you think that's what you need, he says, you don't know if those things will be good for you or not. Because who knows? Only God knows. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And we need to remember that this is Solomon speaking to us, right? Who's basically sent, spent six chapters bragging to us about how much life his better, how much better his life was than yours, right? All the things he's accumulated, experienced, and lived out are wildest fantasies. But then he has spent six chapters telling us what? That all those things are vanity. It's vapor. It's fleeting. And so just as we don't know what's coming for us tomorrow, shoot, we don't know what's happening to us this afternoon, right? We don't know if those worldly things that we crave so badly will truly bring us happiness or fulfillment or not. And we also don't know what our suffering and what our sorrow and what our present situation that we often are trying to escape will bring us. So Solomon spent all this time telling us that, that we have it twisted. Our viewpoint is off. And then we get to chapter seven, where he really starts giving us these parables, which if we read them honestly, and if we're honest with ourselves, it disorients us to what we think we know as the truth. It sounds the opposite often of what we think. And it does this in order to reorient us to what is actually good and what can actually be beneficial for us. So let's look at chapter seven, verse one. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death, better than the day of birth. I'm gonna stop there just for a second. So this first one, right? Some of these things we're gonna read, Solomon's gonna talk a lot about death today. And it's gonna challenge uh, the way that we think of things. We're gonna have a hard time getting on board with some of those as we read them, if we read them at face value. This first one, a good name better than precious ointment is maybe the one that we can get on board with, right? And here's what he means by that. A good name, he means when you die at the end of your life, your reputation, what people say about who you were, the character that you had, those things are gonna be more precious or more important than you smelled good all the time. You took care of yourself physically. They always had the best clothes and most stylish clothes, right? Or the things that the world thinks are important. He's saying, hey, those are not gonna be what people remember you by. It's gonna be a good name. And, and we can get on board with that, right? I think we, we're like, yeah, that, that makes sense. I want people at the end of the day to remember that, not that Garrett wore cool cardigans and um, whatever. Okay. Okay, let's look again. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Verse three, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart 
is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Let's stop right there. So the book of Ecclesiastes, smack dab in the middle of what is known as the wisdom literature of the Bible. That's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And wisdom in the Bible is really an instinct for living well in the world as it is, not as we wish it were. And the brutality of the wisdom that Ecclesiastes offers us doesn't hide from the hard parts. It doesn't hide from what's grievous about life in the fallen world. Life is hard. And one of the places we see that and experience that the most is through death, right? Through death. One of the greatest consequences that we experience because of sin in Genesis is death. Life is hard. So these stark provocative comparisons in chapter seven are meant to set off the way of the wise from the way of the fool. It's meant to point us in two separate directions. This is a wise path. This is what the fool will do, how they will respond to death, to sorrow, to hardships, to the loss of dreams or things that we think will fulfill us or that we need. But to do that, he starts out kind of flipping the switch on everything that we think about life. Verse one tells us the day of our death is better than the day of birth. And we're like, how is that? How could that be, right? Verse two tells us it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And it doesn't sound better to me right? That doesn't sound right. What about all that eat, drink, and be merry stuff we talked about a few weeks ago? Where's that stuff, Solomon? Verse three tells us sorrow is better than laughter. What does that even mean? Now, over the course of this series and through conversations that we've had in our missional community, it's We've talked a lot, honestly, about how it can be difficult to read Solomon's writings here. It's easiest for it to catch the the heavy kind of depressing part and miss out on the hope and the good news that he shares. So we probably need to clarify two things right up front here as he's flipping our viewpoint. We need to to clarify a couple things in order for this to land on us like I believe the teacher wants us to. And the first is that this, the teacher has a specific kind of feasting and laughing in mind, he's not, he's not a fun hater, right? He's not against appreciating the goodness and the beauty in the world. For all its moments of bleakness and where it feels kind of depressive, this book also celebrates joy and the good gifts of God. Solomon is pro-fun, right? He's pro-party because he partied hard right? You remember those thousand ladies he was bragging about earlier, right? But there is, what he is saying, a sort of feasting and laughter that is deceptive and counterproductive and not the way of the wise, but the way of fools, right? There is a sort of feasting and laughter that is shallow, that is empty. It's hectic, easy come, easy go. 
It's things that we run to, to numb ourselves, to pain and present suffering. It's a way that we try things that we run to in order to escape maybe the truth of the circumstance and the moment that we're in. This sort of laughter, this sort of feasting is a poor substitute for the careful reflection and honest emotional response to life. Really all it is, is it's a strategy for avoiding whatever might be weighing us down or spoiling our good time, right? This is the type of thing the teacher is warning us from. He's warning us about the foolish things we run to when hardship comes. And hear me, when I say foolish things, I'm not just talking about bad things all the time. We've, we've laid that out. There are some good gifts, some good mercies that God offers us. But when we put our hope in those things, we run to those things to escape the real situation and time that God has, we are not reflecting on maybe what he is doing in us and what he would have for us through that. So it might just be, right, a glass of wine, a good beer, or two, or three, or six pack, right? It might be a Netflix binge to escape the real world. It might be Amazon, maybe a little shop therapy. That's what I need. Right? It might be a new relationship. I don't know what your jam is, but Solomon would say, watch out for the ways that we try to distract ourselves and retreat from reality. It's not the way of the wise. The second thing we need to clear up is that when the teacher says that mourning is better than feasting or that death is better than birth, it's not because death and sorrow are good things in and of themselves. Right? We've already talked about that's not what the original plan was. That's where things get crooked for us. Those are not better in and of themselves, but instead, <clears throat> the teacher would have us hear that the day of death has more to teach us than the day of birth. Death isn't better than life, but we can learn more from the fact or the realization, knowing that our lives are going to end and those good gifts are going to end. We can learn more from the fact that our lives will end than the fact that we're alive in the first place. And we learn those lessons, not in the house of feasting, but in the house of mourning. And the house of mourning is where we look long and hard at the truth that are hard, they rightly break our hearts, but that is the place where we learn. And isn't that counterintuitive just to the way that we think? Do you feel like the tension that we have when, when we hear that? We love to celebrate new life, right? Just think about birth. Think about the, 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 the birth of little ones and the potential that that brings. That's why we like to celebrate and focus on that more than a funeral, right? We love to focus on the potential joy that maybe this little one will experience or that we will get to experience through them. I was thinking a lot this week about gender reveal parties, right? Where I feel like when it started out, it was like 
Okay, kind of cute. We're going to celebrate this potential life. And it started with just like cupcakes and like, ooh, is it blue or is it pink, right? And we're going to open this box and these balloons are going to come out, right? We love to celebrate that. So much so that these gender reveal parties have gotten to the point where we are literally blowing stuff up. Like I was reading into it, like literally there are like forest fires, like major catastrophes because we thought it would be cool to put all these explosives and some like blue or pink powder together, right? People are dying, there are plane crashes because people are like using these banners. Like we love to celebrate new life and potential. And I think we would all agree that those parties are good things, not the, not the fires and the death and stuff, right? But the just like normal cheesy, uh, cheesy ones. We would say, well, those are certainly better than, than the funeral, than the death of someone that we love or the death of a child. Because in those, what do we do? We, we focus on, again, the potential that was missed out on instead of the good that God did through that. So what I believe Solomon in his wise old age with all of his accomplishments and acquirements and experiences would have us here in these first few Proverbs is really simple. Put God's gifts in their proper place. Just remember we're talking about our viewpoint. He's flipping it upside down. Put them in their proper place. The word today helps us enjoy the good gifts of life by preventing us from worshiping or trusting in them. Under the sun, no good gift is ours to keep. Everything's on loan. Everything is on loan. And again, you know where we learn that lesson the most? In the house of mourning. When we see how short time is and that we don't truly know what's coming or what's gonna happen. So Solomon isn't saying to be a glutton for punishment, to enjoy and be grateful for your sorrow. But he is saying we can learn more from our pain than from pleasure. And this is a hard, this is a hard lesson. We don't like this. To trust ourselves to these good gifts. And it's not just children, okay? Don't, don't get lost on Solomon talking about birth. This is all God's good gifts. We've heard specifically the last two weeks that to put our hope in our time or our hobbies or relationships or our beauty or good food or again, insert your jam here, to trust ourselves to those things is to ruin any chance of truly enjoying them. Grief and mourning are just better teachers. And the teacher would tell us today that if we fail to learn this lesson, if we aim for security in reputations or fortunes or career or family or whatever else we build for ourselves, we will eventually deal with crippling loss and frustration. But if we accept the grief that comes with loss, then these gifts of God, like the manna in the wilderness, they don't spoil. 
right? And instead, they can be what they are supposed to be, what God intended them to be, and that is not his competition, but tokens of his love for his children. I've always loved this quote, and this is uh, Winnie the Pooh. But it says, and I, I don't think he really said it, right? But it says, how lucky am I to have something that makes saying goodbye so hard? Like Pooh gets it right there, right? The teacher's brutal honesty about what time does to everything aims at joy in God's good gifts. And mourning helps us to see their limitations, right? Accepting their limitations helps us see them for what they are and not for what they aren't, okay? Let's keep reading verse five. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is a vanity. So Solomon started by telling us that we'd be more wise to think about the fact that we will someday die rather than the fact that we were born, right? Next, he tells us it would be wise for us, better for us not to surround ourselves with fools, not to surround ourselves with a bunch of fools, but instead to surround ourselves with wise, Jesus-loving people who will say hard things to you because they love you. Be better to, to surround yourself with those people rather than a bunch of fools, right? Who just go along with you, agree with a lot of our self-sabotaging tendencies and habits and opinions, right? These are those, the mean jocks in every team teen movie or the mean group of popular girls in every teenage movie where you have this one lead jerk and then these minions falling around like little puppets just agreeing with everything, right? Solomon says, don't do that. Don't invest your life in those people, in a bunch of yes men and yes women who don't really care enough about you to possibly tell you that your sorrow or hardship or this bad thing might be your fault, right? They're afraid to tell you that it was your fault so you never grow and then you're just actually always a victim and God's not fair or he's forgotten about you. He doesn't care about you. It's a bad investment to have friends like that. The teacher says that those voices are like Crackling thorns under a pot. You know what you can cook over a fire of thorns? Nothing. Nothing. What happens when you light a pile of thorns is it flares up real big. It makes a big show of flames, makes a bunch of noise, provides no heat, burns out quickly. It's useless. It's useless. So instead, what Solomon says is better sounds a lot like what we call community, right? To surround yourself, to listen to, get this, to sit in the house of mourning with 
wise brothers and sisters who will sit beside you and point you to Jesus, who will speak gospel truth to you and remind you that in your hurting, God still loves you and he has a plan and he is still worth trusting, right? They might even rebuke you if they're really good friends, right? But they do it because they love you too much to see you flounder and sit in despair or self-pity when pointing you to the truth brings the real healing and the real joy. Not pointing you towards a girl's trip or a shopping trip or we need to hit the bar. When pointing you to the truth brings healing and joy. Give me those kind of friends, right? Give me that kind of counsel, amen? Good. Verse seven. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and, the, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So in, the, in, the, in Hebrew, uh, oppression really means like weight. So what Solomon is saying here is that there will be times where the weight of the fallen world presses so hard on your soul, where things in your present are just really hard and sorrow is real, right? The weight of the fallen world presses so hard on your soul that all that you think you know or understand in our own viewpoint will start to spin and the temptation will be there to either do nothing or to do what you know is wrong instead of what you know is right. And he says, this is super dangerous, monumentally dangerous because this has a very real chance of damaging your soul. When the Bible talks about the heart of man, he's usually talking about his soul, okay? Solomon says that even the wise will be tempted. They'll be tempted to give in to what is wrong. They'll be tempted to do nothing sometimes when they know they should act and and doing this will poison your soul. Verse eight, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. All right, so the the teacher continues here in verse eight, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. All's well that ends well is what we would say, right? And here's where I think we hit the real meat of today's text and what this has for us. And I believe what Pascal, the the quote we, we started with alludes to, and that is to understand what the end goal is. To understand what the end goal is. If we understand what the end goal is, then our patience when things are difficult will increase because we're seeing things rightly, right? So when you're in sorrow and hardship and, and things are just rough, if we 
understand what the end goal is, our patience when things are difficult will increase and our anger will decrease. It's better to understand what we're after, what we're trying to accomplish, what life is about, what the end is, because if you understand the end, patience will increase, anger will decrease. And then you won't have to go all Uncle Rico in verse 10 here, right? If we have the end in mind, we can stop looking back at the good old days as if they were that. Right? We can stop trying to escape the present, thinking back to times that we think were better, right? Man, if coach would have just put me in the game, we would have won, right? These things that, that we're talking about here, I feel in my core seem to be some of the main languages of culture right now, right? Impatience, anger, and for some, nostalgia, right? And, and the impatience, the anger, those are easy for us to see and recognize, right? Turn on your news, you'll see it everywhere. But man, if we're not careful, that nostalgia one slips right in on us especially as I get older, right? I hear myself sounding more like my grandmother, right? You laugh, you know what I'm talking about. You know, that things aren't like they used to be back in my day, right? Like, oh, the things are getting bad out there, right? And when we say those things, here's how Solomon would respond to us, I think. He'd say, well, you think today's bad? Tomorrow might be worse because you don't, who knows, right? So just be glad it's not tomorrow. Plus you're gonna die soon anyway. So that's what, that's what Solomon would say. And now as silly or stereotypical as some of those examples are, we can very much fall into these traps if we're not careful, okay? When we think the past was so much better than the present, right? Last week, TJ shared kind of some of his struggles and thinkings with, you know, growing... Uh, third kid, the family growing, right? Sometimes you see like, oh, just, they're just little fun, fun blocks, right? Two steps back. I remember saying that sometimes, you know, when we were in that phase with little ones. But it can, we can easily fall into thinking that the past was so much better than the present. Well, back before I had all of this responsibility or back before I had kids or back when I was single or back with whatever, Right? And the danger with that is that when we do that, we're denying the reality that God's presence is in the present. It's here. If you think things are worse, do you think that God is no longer in control? Right? Do you think that he hasn't brought you to the point where you are now and that he no longer loves you or has plans or purposes for you? Is that what we think when we try to escape the present situation that God would have us in? Solomon says this, it's unwise to ask this. It's not smart. He would probably say that's a stupid question, right? Because it forgets God. Often when we ask this question, 
It's because we are blind to the good things of the present and we're ignorant of past evil, right? You ever had an experience? It could be any number of things, right? Like a movie, could be a concert, a meal, a book, a vacation, whatever, right? This experience that when you have it for the first time, it's like so amazing and you hype it up to everybody that'll listen to you, right? And then you go again and you're kind of like disappointed, right? Like I think this about movies a lot. I think back to like a movie from when I was younger. I was like, this is like the best movie ever. Like, boys, I can't wait for you to see this. And then when we watch it, I'm like, this is like not that good, <laughs> right? You know why that is? Because nostalgia misleads. It misleads. It's a form of escapism. It has taken a vacation in the past instead of grappling with the present or looking in faith to what the future holds, right? And Pascal says, examine your thoughts because we probably all do this. And Solomon says, foolish is the man living in the glory days, trying to escape a present time in which God has placed him for a reason. Verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage for those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In verse 14, where hope comes from today, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. All of these parables, everything that Solomon is doing, all the bragging that it seems like he's done to us, right? He is saying, be wise, be wise. Solomon tells us it's a good inheritance wisdom, right? The reality is, no, the Proverbs aren't do this, you're guaranteed to get this. Right? But he says it is a good inheritance. It brings hope. It preserves life. So he says, be wise and remember God. Consider the work that he is doing. The things that we consider crooked in this life, the things that shouldn't be, death, mourning, sorrow. Right? He's not skating around. He's telling you they're coming for all of us. But he says, these two are the work of God. He's still good in the midst of that storm you find yourself. So Solomon concludes in verse 14. He says, when things are good, be glad, be joyful. And the days that are filled with adversity, consider that God has made one as well as the other. He made both. And as we already started out, we don't know what tomorrow will bring or what he's doing through them. All of it, right? The, the saying hindsight's 2020, right? It's because we've all learned things. We can probably each think about something that in our life we thought was the most difficult thing that we ever experienced. And maybe it was, but when you look back, 
you look at it rightly, I think many of us can see how God worked in good things that he did through those. We don't know what tomorrow will bring or what God is doing, but if we keep the end in mind, then we can trust in our God who holds the future, right? That frees us up to live in the here and now and not have to escape and to say, God, what would you have for me in this moment? He's doing something in you. I heard a great, I heard a pastor say a great thing that sometimes he thinks challenges, hardships come just so that we can overcome them. That God gives us the opportunity to pursue those and overcome those. And what a great mercy that is to us. Paul writes to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul claims that we are more than conquerors, not in spite of suffering, but in our suffering. Since the love of God in Christ is always with us, we know what the end is. We can search and find good even in the day of adversity. The sorrow that Ecclesiastes calls wisdom helps us set our hearts on the only source for true, resilient joy. Here's the truth. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Amen? Band, you guys can come back up. The band's gonna lead us in worship today. And we're gonna just try to give you some time through that to, to sing or pray or just wrestle with what God has you in right now in your present situation. Prosperity or adversity, right? We have an opportunity here to respond and we're going to open up the tables during this time for communion. Where when you're ready, you can come to the table, break the bread, dip it in the cup. If you believe in Jesus, if your faith is in him, that's a great opportunity for us to respond with the end in mind. Corinthians 11 says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, the end in mind. The house of mourning 
is where we tell the truth about how fragile all that we love in this world is. And in that house, we lift our eyes and our hopes beyond this world, beyond this life under the sun to the only true comfort in life and in death. Our hope is in Jesus, amen? Amen, let's pray. God, we just thank you, you're so good. Lord, we don't understand what you're doing sometimes. But God, the word today is such a a great example of your mercy and love to remind us and encourage us to trust. God, that in present hardships, when we find ourselves in the house of mourning, a call not to escape, but to look to the truth, to see your good gifts, to be grateful for what you have given us and to trust that you are working through even those hard things that our eyes and minds just can't reconcile right now. God, we thank you for your good gifts. There's such a great example of your mercies to us, so many wonderful things to enjoy. God, would you help us this morning repent for us elevating those things, making idols of the good gifts, making those things your competition when you would just have them be proofs and fruits of the Father's love to us. God, we thank you for the table. We thank you for your blood and body that was shed for us that we can have hope to know that our sorrow is also temporary. That the pain we feel on this earth is not all that you would have for us. That there is more than just this life under the sun. Would we keep that hope in front of us this morning and celebrate and worship your goodness, Lord? Work through hearts this morning as only you could do, Lord. We love you. We praise you for your goodness. In your mighty and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship this morning.